Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Our focus will be on verses 15 through 17, not 16 through 18. 18 really is part of another section that goes into chapter 4. Today our focus will be on, again, 15 through 17. In the midst of this Christ-centered book, this Christ-centered chapter, and some of the most Christ-centered verses in all of this great book. Uh, We're still in the midst of, or I guess better put at the end of, putting on new garments. In Christ and because of Christ, we take off our old stinking grave clothes of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, anger, wrath, malice, slander, etc. In Christ, because our lives are hidden in Him, we're raised together with Him, we are putting on, by God's grace, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and forgiveness. All these things, like a garment, are then wrapped with the bond of love, as it says in the verses that just precede this passage. Uh, We just sang Amazing Grace and just heard it again during the offertory. This week, a movie's coming out on the 23rd that I recommend to all of you. I saw a pre-screening of it. It's Amazing Grace. It's the life story of William Wilberforce, uh, but the sub-character, you might say, that I want to draw your attention to when thinking of taking off the old and putting on the new is John Newton. John Newton himself, who's portrayed wonderfully in this movie, uh, just wonderfully, was a personal mentor to William Wilberforce. And for us in the Reformed tradition, we appreciate the fact that Newton was very Reformed, and Wilberforce was even more so than the movie brought out. This is actually what fueled his world life, his biblical world life view is what fueled his activity. But Newton himself understood taking stinking old clothes off and putting on new clothes. He was a blasphemer. He was cruel to people. He was a man-stealer. He was a liar. He was a murderer. He did all these things before Christ found him. And when Christ found him in all his stink, he took off that clothes and started putting on new clothes. And Newton is one of the prime examples that we can point to to seeing this process that God does in the life of of a believer, we are raised from death. It's not pretty. But then when he starts putting off the old and putting on the new, we begin to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so we come to verses 15 through 17, which bring us to a certain amount of closure with regard to this issue of putting off and putting on. And as you might expect, it has everything to do with Christ. Hear God's word. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Lord, help me just to get out of the way that these verses would come forth in their full power where they are of Christ, about Christ, through Christ, in Christ, with Christ. And I pray that we would be changed as a result, that we would walk out of here understanding very clearly our purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it's true to say that people in general, Christians or not, are in search of purpose. There is a telling line in a relatively recent film, The Matrix Reloaded. You heard it right, The Matrix Reloaded, right from this pulpit, in which Agent Smith 
confronts Neo, who's the main character, about the nature of purpose. In fact, I'll point out out of the three movies, or the first one's okay, but the other two are a huge disappointment, with the exception of this line. It's profound. Smith says to Neo, without purpose, we would not exist. It is purpose that defines, purpose that binds us. Some say that purpose is not inherent. In other words, we choose what our purpose will be. We go after a purpose based on our volition. Some make pursuing a career their purpose, raising a family their purpose, devotion to some creative vocation or par particular cause their purpose in life. For some, and it's very popular, the acquisition of property becomes their purpose. Public service becomes their purpose. Helping the needy becomes their purpose. But one of the most profound statements along these lines of purpose, especially coming from an unbeliever, comes from cartoonist Ralph Barton. Ralph Barton was born in Kansas City, some of you might know. He was a very popular cartoonist in the early part of the last century. In the 1920s, he was the most famous cartoonist in the whole country. And this is really before the funnies. It was more uh, political cartoons and social cartoons. And he had a powerful way of describing what was going on through these cartoons and these illustrations. Barton took his own life and listened to what he said. In the midst of his riches and fortune, his last note said, I am fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours of the day. He lived with no purpose. Or at least he could not see what purpose he had. You know, Christians, though, also speak much of purpose. That's en vogue right now, as you all know. Uh, but for a long time, it's been the case. Helen Keller wrote, and I think very profound, coming from her, that happiness comes from faithfulness to a worthy purpose. Our own shorter catechism says, well, what is man's chief end or the chief end of man? Man's chief end, man's purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now, you've all heard in recent times, no doubt, of Rick Warren's best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, the subtitle to that book is very provocative, it, and most people don't know it. They know Purpose Driven Life, but the subtitle is What on Earth Am I Here For? That's a very good question that everybody asks. Clearly, people are hungry for this because his book sold over 11 million copies in just two years. And to do the math, that's 15,000 copies per day. That's how much people want to know and interact with the question, answering the question, what is my purpose? I believe that these three verses will give us great general clarity on this question. We have to start with the general before we can start being specific about our personal lives. But we have to have the right general picture, and this text gives it to us. We are blessed, we know from the balance of this book, to be under the gracious reign of God, and in particular, King Jesus. And therefore, we have clear purpose for our lives. So what we will see in this text, very simply with each verse, first, the reign of God's peace in our lives gives us purpose. Secondly, the reign of God's word over our lives gives us purpose. And thirdly, the reign of Christ's lordship through our lives manifests purpose. Starting at verse 15, we see the reign of God's peace in our lives. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. First of all, the peace of Christ. What is the peace of Christ? It is to rule, not just to have part of our lives, be an area of our lives, but rule our lives. What is the peace of Christ? Well, this is 
a larger subject that Scripture addresses in a general way and then specifically. First, peace comes only from Christ. That's the literal way it's spoken of. Peace of Christ. That is, peace that comes forth from Christ. Christ, first, on the basic level, provides peace with God. Every one of us needs peace with God. That's man's ultimate problem. We are not at peace with God. I I remember, at least to some degree, not being at peace with God. Now, I was in the context of hearing of God, and I had certain exposure to his word, so it wasn't so much that I felt myself shaking my fist at him, although I may have been in my heart. It was more that I was scared of him because I knew that I was a sinner, and he had the right to punish me. I could not make excuse like I could make to my teacher or my parents. I knew standing before him that there was a war going on because I could not be good enough. I needed peace with God before I could have peace in any other way. I could not have peace with my family, my friends, my eventual spouse. I could not have peace with you. I couldn't have peace with myself until I was at peace with God. And only one person brings us peace with God, Christ. Because he takes our sin and the punishment thereof on himself and removes it as a barrier. So there's an open communication, an open fellowship, an open relationship between myself and God the Father. I cannot have peace with God any other way. No man, no woman can have peace with God except by Christ. And then when they have peace with Christ, it opens up your world. Now the peace of Christ rules us because we're at peace with God. It doesn't mean we stop being sinners. It means that we no longer have to hide it from God. We can put it before God and confess it and repent of it, and he gives us repentance. And so now we have that open relationship with God. I can now have a real, authentic relationship with you. It's not perfect. I still sin. But that peace with God provides for repentance when I need it, when you need it, and we can have peace with one another. That then gives me a certain sense of peace within myself, that I'm not at war with God anymore, and I don't need to be at war with you. Now, I may struggle against that for a time, but as God subdues me to himself, God's peace, the peace of Christ in particular, begins to rule my heart and rule our community. If you ever get an email from me, you know there's a tag I put in the bottom of my emails, and uh, there's several meanings to it. I'll let you decide what they are. But the specific meaning is exactly to do with this. It's a quote from Philip Schaff, a church historian, about Martin Luther and the change in Luther's life. Before Luther came to Christ, before he was at peace with God, he was at war with God, and he said it audibly and verbally. He said, well, Luther had a habit of saying what people think. He just had the guts to say it. And he was at war. He, enjoyed, he left law school in a, a very prominent school and a great career ahead of him because he so badly wanted salvation. He believed that salvation could only come by the monastic life, by literally beating himself, by depriving himself of food, of sleep, of fellowship with others, of all the things you can imagine, because he believed that there had to be some way he can make himself, uh, make himself right before God. He lived a terrible, beaten-down life until... He came to recognize that just shall live by faith, faith a gift of God, no, that no one might boast, that he might have faith in who in Christ, who takes away the dividing wall of separation, and now we have peace with God. He came to realize this by God's grace, and he was changed. The first half of his life looks, life looks remarkably different from the second half, and that's what the reign of God's peace in our life looks like. And this is what Schaff says, and you'll find it at the bottom of my emails. Early in Martin Luther's life, He looked like an aesthetic monk, pale, haggard, and emaciated. But in later years, he grew stout and portly. 
The change is characteristic of his transition from legalistic gloom to evangelical cheerfulness. Some of us are more cheerful than others. <laughs> the point is, we're at peace with God, so it makes every difference, even down to our physical beings. In the rest we have because we are at peace with God. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I'm sure some of you are at war with God right now, and you have no peace. And you have to stop the battle. You have to trust in Christ, and you have to allow God, in this sense, humanly speaking, to remove the dividing wall of separation so that you can begin to live. This is the beginning to finding purpose, is to be at peace with God. And please notice a feature of this text that is missing in Warren's book, at least. And by the way, I don't think it's a bad book at all. That gives five good principles that are biblically based. It just lacks some of the particulars that would really help us really be more biblical. And one of them is it's too disjointed from the body of Christ. It, it's kind of a formula for individuals rather than the, the breadth of the Bible is communal. The reason why he's working to sanctify you as an individual to build up this community for greater transformational power, not just to make us all individual purpose-driven people, but to have the church strengthened as a result. And that's what is spoken of here in the second part of verse 15, to which indeed you were called, that's the peace of Christ ruling your heart, in one body. So as we are at peace with God, we are at peace with one another, and there is a unity among believers that is part of God's will for us and part of the means that he uses to reach the world for Christ. We are to act in harmony with one another. This goes back to the verses that just precede, bearing with one another in verse 13. And if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Peace with one another in the community of believers is best practiced and emulated for the world to see and for Christ to be preached by our deeds. Peace is active. It's ongoing. It needs to be maintained. It assumes that we are interacting. Peace, by the way, this is important, isn't just the absence of hostility. Don't think you're at peace with a brother or sister just because you managed to avoid them. That's not peace. That's just avoiding hostility. Peace is being able to interact with each other, even with our differences, and loving one another because of the love Christ has shown us. You know, if you have that person who you see is coming down the hall and you try to go the other way, if you're honest, why would Jesus feel any different about any one of us? What did we give him? Our sin. Humanly speaking, if he were like us, wouldn't he be standing at the end of the hall and seeing Tony coming and trying to find out where to go to get out of his line of, line of, uh, his line of travel? Peace is something that pervades our own lives and then strengthens our fellowship. That's the will of God for us, to which indeed you were called into one body, a unified body. I would just ask you specifically, do you trust in the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you have peace with God because of Christ? Are you at war with God? Are you mad at God? Are you trying to deny God? Are you trying to craft God into your own image so that you could find him acceptable? Are you at peace with God? And notice how verse 15 ends because it's the same way all three of these verses end. And be thankful. So are you thankful for what God has done for you in providing his son for you? Are you thankful to Christ for his suffering for you? Are you thankful to God for how he loves you and takes care of you? Are you thankful that you have been made part of the body of Christ? You've been made part of a family. We're no longer orphans. We're part of the body of Christ. Are you thankful that you have been called? This is the beginning to understanding and living based on our purpose. Verse 16 continues now. We're under the reign of God's peace in our lives in Christ, but now we're also 
under the reign of God's word over our lives. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The reign of God's word over our lives drives our purpose. Over our lives, meaning that as the word of God saturates our very being, we live according to it, are under its authority now. The word of Christ literally means, at least in its smallest form, the gospel of Christ. Christ saving us. That's the word of Christ. But we can't divorce that from the Bible itself because the whole scripture points towards Christ providing redemption for his people. So the word of Christ specifically is the gospel that we trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. We have peace with God. But the word of Christ also embodies all the scriptures as they point to this very fact. So the word of Christ, the scriptures, must saturate our lives. And notice how it describes this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Two terms, dwell and richly. First of all, to dwell in us does not simply mean to have a head knowledge of something. Dwelling means that it courses through our veins. Think of blood and how blood courses through your whole body, through the veins and the arteries, and then from those are smaller little capillaries, and it brings blood to the, all of your body. If you even look at your hand, especially in a cold day, and I can even see it in mine, I could see how blood courses through my hands, through smaller vessels and larger vessels. This is descriptive of how the Word of God must dwell in us. It must course through us, saturate us. And it must do so richly. Richly, it gives you a depiction of fruitfulness or that which produces action or activity or you can see it. So it dwells in us and then it manifests itself in our life. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Beautifully, not only are we to have the word studied, we don't not only read the word, hear it preached, hear it taught, memorize it, but we also sing it. And I think what we have here is a, a wonderful revelation. We take the word of God into our heads, and then there is a sense in which the way it courses through us is as we sing it, because music itself affects the emotions, and it draws us in in a deeper way. And so as we sing the word of God, we're teaching and warning one another. That's what admonish means. So we're praising God in song, but we're also teaching in song. This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, that our songs that we sing are thoroughly biblical and deep in their biblical teaching. Because as we sing them, we come to basically make a confession of faith to music. And it gets in us in a way that it doesn't get in us ordinarily. That's why we're told to do it. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Look how the word of God sandwiches teaching and admonishing. The first part of verse 16, the word of Christ dwell in you. Teaching and admonishing, based on what? Based on the word of Christ. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What's all wisdom? All wisdom can only be God's wisdom, the Word of God. So sandwiched between the Word of God is teaching and admonishing. That's how all of our teaching in the church should be, based on the Word of God, and warning on the word of, based on the Word of God, and singing based on the Word of God. The Word of God has to become so part of our lives, brothers and sisters, that when we see world events, we just automatically think through a biblical grid as to how we're to interpret it. I think that's what's plaguing the church so badly today. Activities and actions happen, and we speak ignorantly to them, or we don't speak at all. And we cause reactions in culture that oppose God's glory rather than help craft it. And let me give you a classic case in point that happened just this week. Just this week, knowing that we all live 
in this world, we're part of the culture in one sense, but we're to learn to analyze biblically everything in the culture so we can make temperate, wise, objective, gentle corrections. This past week, maybe it was the week before, a former NBA player came out with a biography. From what I can tell, the book is basically lame, except for the revelation that this player, who only played five years and wasn't, uh, wasn't a star by any means, but because he comes out with the revelation that he is a practicing homosexual, therefore now the book has become interesting. No one probably buy it otherwise, but because of this revelation, it's become popular. Well, very interestingly, as we're heading towards the NBA All-Star Weekend, for those who care, Tim Hardaway, who was a star in the NBA, decided to speak in these terms. I have no idea if he's a believer or not. But this is what he says about that book that came out. He says, you know, I hate gay people. So let it be known. I do not like gay people, and I don't like to be around gay people. I am homophobic. I don't like it. It shouldn't be in our world or in the United States. And second of all, if he was on my team, I would, you know, really distance myself from him because uh, I don't think that it's right. And you know I don't think that he should be in the locker room. While we're in the locker room, I wouldn't even be a part of that. So now... Based on that, what I would describe as intemperate language, the pendulum swings, and David Stern, who's the commissioner of the league, says this. It is inappropriate for him, Hardaway, to be representing us given the disparity between his views and ours. The lack of biblical speech and temperate speech makes them defend sin. That's what's wrong with not having the word of Christ richly indwell us when we speak to cultural issues. Speak to them the way we're supposed to speak to them. A blown opportunity, in fact, advances a sinful cause in my view. So how might we think biblically about such an interchange? What could have been different? Well, the Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is a perversion of God's intended order. It is sin. It is wrong. It should not be viewed as an acceptable option at any time. Believers in the NBA, when given the chance, should gently speak against such behavior. But they should not speak in terms of hate at any time. The Bible also teaches, by the way, to those in the NBA who may listen to this, the Bible also speaks that any sexual activity outside of marriage is a sinful perversion that will harm all parties involved. Believers in the NBA, when given the chance, especially in one of the most promiscuous leagues there are, based on player testimony, should gently speak against the promiscuity and the behavior that's also sinful in their arena as well. And they should do so by their lives and by wisely timed words of biblical truth as they have opportunity. That's letting the word of Christ dwell and then entering it into the public square in a temperate, wise, loving way that does not compromise the truth, but does not speak hate against people, which we are never called to do by our Lord. Are you, are we under the authority of the word of God? And if yes, how has it pervaded and just come into our veins in such a way that we think biblically, we analyze biblically, and the way we live can be looked at as an example of one who knows what scripture says and then lives according to it. Are you seeking opportunities to live out God's word? and possibly speak out God's word. I have a particular challenge to the home fellowship group leaders and their wives. This next home fellowship group meeting that happens this week or next week, depending on your schedules, I would like uh, the men, the home fellowship group leader, uh, who is the man, uh, to take the men at the last five minutes of your Bible study time and just everyone 
pack together that they're going to spend regular time in the Word of God for the next two weeks before you meet again. No prescription on how much, just that you will open the Word of God and read at least a verse or two each day. And then in two weeks, come back and check on one another and see how you've done in that. And for the wife in the Home Fellowship Group Leader, she does the same thing with the ladies in the group. Just do this for a two-week period. Hold one another accountable to let the Word of Christ richly indwell you. See how that makes a difference in helping you. We all need a little boost. We all need a little help and accountability that's loving and not judgmental just to be in the Word. Let's do this, and I will, I will email you this so you remember this, Home Fellowship Group leaders, and I will challenge you, members of the church, to be part of starting to regularly see God's Word the beginning of your day, in the middle of your day, throughout the day, so that you might be permeated with its truth. When you hear issues being spoken of, run them through the grid of Scripture, whatever it is. What does God's Word say about this or that? God's Word is the standard, not someone's party affiliation, not someone's affiliation that's human in any way, but God's Word and how he or she speaks and acts in relationship to it, including ourselves. Notice how this verse ends. It's the same way verse 15 ends. And verse 17, for that matter, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So teaching and warning uh, one with another comes with a thankfulness in our hearts. In other words, are you thankful for God's revelation to us in the Word? He did not leave us to wonder. Uh, we cause wonderment. We cause wandering because we deny what the Word says. But that's not God's fault. That's us. He's given us clear revelation about all manners of life, matters of life and godliness. And so we're not left to wander. Are we thankful to God for such clear instruction? Well, not only is our purpose defined by the reign of God's peace in our lives, it's also promoted by the reign of God's word over our lives. And then finally, the reign of Christ's lordship through our lives in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. Whatever in the Greek means whatever. Everything you do. That means there is no legitimate separation of sacred and secular. It's true that we have moments, high moments you might say. I think this is a high moment. We're together on the Lord's day. But it's not that one moment is not sacred. Maybe there's more sacred moments than others, but there's not sacred versus secular in the life of the one who has been purchased by Christ. Your whole life is Christ. Which means whatever we do in word or deed, we do in the name of Christ, or we are to do in the name of Christ. Now, what does this mean? Literally, to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus means that you do it by the authority of Jesus Christ. So whatever you do, you have to be able to say, I do so now by the authority of Jesus Christ. There are not some things that fall out of Jesus' reign as king. Not one thing. Everything we have to subject ourselves to this question, I do so now, am I doing so now, by the authority of Jesus. That's what it means to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. I remember uh, <clears throat> two weeks ago, Pastor Nathan was talking about Dr. Chappell's book, Praying Backwards, and what he means is by starting, in Jesus' name I pray for, and then I pray for whatever it is, instead of tacking in Jesus' name at the end of the prayer. Meaning that as you start a prayer by saying, in Jesus' name, Lord, would you do this? You check yourself at the beginning and ask yourself, would this be according to God's will? Now, if you legitimately don't know, pray for it. But if you know, and sometimes we know, this isn't God's will, and so therefore we change and correct our prayers accordingly. Well, similarly in our lives, 
before I do something, or if I'm in the midst of doing something, let me put the question to myself, can I say that I'm doing this by the authority of Jesus Christ? The job I have and the way I conduct myself at my job, I do so by the authority of Jesus. What does that mean to you? My speech, my speech, wherever it is, I do so by the authority of Jesus Christ. The conduct of my relationships, I do in Jesus' name. The social club that I want to run with. You know, I look at so-and-so and I think, man, I really wish I was like him. I wish I could have the things he has, the prestige and the things that he goes, and the respect people give him. I really want that, and I do so in the name of Jesus. How does that color what I just said? Is it in, by God's authority that I would seek after someone else's approval other than God's? The way I spend the Lord's money. Am I doing so by the authority of Christ? When I'm standing in the checkout line, am I buying this by the authority of Jesus Christ? The way I speak to my children, do I do so by the authority of Christ? Because that's what they think. They think what I do is by the authority of Christ. They believe that. They only grow to not believe that when it's clear that I'm not emulating Christ. The problem is they start not believing Christ also. Very powerful. The way I speak to my wife. Do I do so by the authority of Jesus Christ? Would Jesus stand behind me and say, yes, say that to her? Definitely say that to her. Follow it up with this. My parents, the way I honor my parents. It doesn't say honor your parents until you get out of the house. It says honor your parents. Do I do so in a way that Jesus would say, you have my authority to do that. Christ's lordship reigns through our lives then. It, the word of God being over, the peace of Christ being in, now as we live in accordance to the king, the world is going to be changed. If a bunch of people start acting like their king is telling them to act, that will have a profound effect on the world. The reason why we don't have the profound effect, in my view, is that we struggle with the kingship of Christ in our own lives, those who have been bought by the king, at a base level, and so it's not permeating culture like it ought to be. What is the goal and purpose of your life? Why are you doing what you do? When you speak, who are you speaking for? Why do you choose the words you choose? Why are you working where you work? Why have you chosen the particular recreation or hobby that you have? How can your life be lived by the authority of Christ in the name of Jesus? Notice how this verse ends. In fact, look at the verses very quickly again. Verse 15 ends with, and be thankful. Verse 16 ends with, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him, that is Christ. I think what God is doing here in this text through the apostle is reminding us that a heart of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude, is what keeps these things fresh and alive in our lives as opposed to cold and drudgery. Why do we want our kids to say thank you all the time? You know and I know that we learn to say thank you far before we actually are thankful. The point is, we realize how important it is and how good it is for our lives, for our children. If our children will be thankful, their life's going to be so much better than if they're crabby and complaining about everything that happens, or if they're never grateful. We know that that kind of life leads to bitterness, and, and it actually hurts us physically when we look at life this way. So we want our kids to be thankful, because if they can learn thankfulness, no matter what happens in life, they're going to have a certain sense of joy about them. And so God, after giving us this huge pattern of taking off and putting on, reminds us, and, and be thankful about this, and with thankfulness, and, and be thankful in this. 
He's given you his spirit. He's given you his word. He's given you his people. He's given you clear direction. He's given you Jesus. Now, be thankful for this. Be thankful. And I can think, really, of no better way, no better opportunity. We have those of us sitting here right now in other people, in other churches, in other places where we could see such a change begin. You have an opportunity. You're sitting here right now. You are parts, uh, you yourself as an individual, maybe you're part of a family. Many of you are. You're part of this church. You're part of, many of you are part of the school we have here, but you go to schools. Your, your kids are in schools or you are homeschooling. You have that sphere of influence that you may be with. You also have communities that you're all part of. And we have right there in a very simple level without running out looking for all other ways, if we're just faithful in those arenas, we, I just spoke of four major arenas that you can have a kingdom impact on simply by having the right purpose, which is to do everything by the authority of Christ. I get extremely excited when I consider how much potential God has given us for kingdom advance in this small place. How, I mean, more than my life could ever finish pursuing. Just I'm talking about family, church, and school right there. And then the impact it has on our community. Right there alone will take the rest of my life. And I'll be happy to do it. Because we've been given an eternal purpose with clear direction and how to follow it. So, with all the specifics that there are out there and teaching you about your purpose, I think there can be some helpful things learned. Don't ever lose this. And that's maybe the second criticism I do have of the book, The Purpose Driven Life. It mentions Jesus and no doubt Warren believes in Jesus and believes in the gospel as we have, uh, have talked of. About It's not as powerful as I'd like to see it, and it's not expounded as well as it could be. But in Colossians, there's no doubt in this whole chapter, in this whole book, that it is totally Christ-soaked, and maybe that's what it needs a little more of. It's all about Christ. It's about His glory, advancing His glory. Not about me becoming a more whole person, uh, only to the degree that it will further the glory of Christ. And that's what we have for us when we read, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, it comes from the peace of God in us through Christ, and it comes from the word of God over us, and now we can have the lordship of Christ manifested through us. That's purpose. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for purpose. And so clearly, in a nutshell, it's let's do it for Jesus. I pray that we would ask ourselves before we do whatever it is we do, and you give us so many great things to do, so many things that are fun and wonderful and can be done for Jesus. But Lord, let us see it as that. We're doing it for Jesus. When we play with our kids, we wrestle around on the ground, when we listen to music, when we talk to one another, when we work, when we come here to worship, let us do it by the authority of Christ. And Lord, very, very simply, help us ask the question on a regular basis, how is this word or deed done in the name of Christ? And if we cannot answer that, Lord, help us to just stop doing whatever it is. Lord, thank you for this text. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who applies it to our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.